Welcome to Unspoken, the podcast that highlights experiences that are all too common but very rarely discussed. I am Dr. Cloda Campbell, the wellness psychologist, and I feel very passionately about speaking the unspoken to remove the taboo and shame that so often surrounds our experiences and internal worlds. For each episode of Unspoken, I am joined by someone who would like to uncover their unspoken with us in order to help themselves, but also in order to help others. I really hope that you enjoy today's episode and that you take something from it. Today's podcast is very proudly sponsored by my absolute favourite Irish skincare brand, Ella and Joe Cosmetics. With formulas that are powered by plants and backed by science, Ella and Joe are dedicated to creating high quality, luxurious skincare products that actually deliver results and that create magic moments in your day. Whether your skin is dry, dull, or just in need of a pick-me-up, the Ella and Joe range will put the joy back into your skincare routine. Find your skin confidence again by shopping Ella and Joe's beautiful products on ellaandjoe.ie using discount code UNSPOKEN for 15% off. Today I am joined by Shirley, who has very bravely agreed to share her Unspoken with us. Shirley grew up in 1970s rural Ireland, where at the tender age of 15, she fell pregnant and, as a result, was sent to a home for unmarried mothers. Shirley speaks to me today about what this experience was like for her, including the shock, the shame, the loneliness, and ultimately the incredible heartbreak of being separated from her much-loved baby. Shirley is an incredibly special person and our conversation is one that I have no doubt will stay with you long after today's episode. Shirley, welcome to Unspoken. Thank you, Clodagh. It's lovely to be here. Well, I am so honoured to have you here and thank you so much for your willingness to, to share your Unspoken with us. It's one that truly encapsulates this podcast and why Unspoken was born. So we're really grateful to you for being here. I'd love to begin our conversation by you bringing us back to what life was like growing up in Cork in the 70s. Um, It was lovely. It was very free. It was very innocent. Um, Like my memories would be just outdoors playing, rolling marbles in the muck, running around, climbing trees. It was just very ordinary. What was your family life like? Um, I was the middle child, so I had have an older brother and a younger sister. Um, We lived in a terrace in a small square. My dad was a soldier. Uh, My mum was a stay at home mother. And yeah, life was just ordinary Mm. is really how I would put it. Yeah. I have this image of you just playing the days away. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you can picture me with this real bright kind of orange short hair and big freckles. (laughs) (laughs) That's the vision I have just as I was saying it. Yeah. Yeah. Like a kind of a little rascal. A rascal. I can see that actually. (laughs) So your unspoken begins when you were 14. Am I right? Yes. You fell in love? Yes, I fell in love. Ironically, well, he wasn't a soldier at the time, but by the time um, we started dating, he joined the army and became a soldier. So he was a few years older than me Mm. and I was smitten. I mean, I thought he was the most handsome, gorgeous man that walked the earth. 
and was kind of a bit wowed by the fact that he had his attention on me. What was it about that that surprised you? Um, I don't know, I suppose it was just that feeling of being special, being wanted, just that attention. Yeah. That meant something to you? Yeah, it meant a lot. I don't know why. Mm. Um, yeah, but it did. I thought he was super cool. And being <laughs> with him made me super cool. Yeah. What was the relationship like? Um, in its innocence, looking back at that time, it was lovely. Um, like it was the usual kind of walks in the park. He actually had a motorbike, so we'd go on the motorbike, which I thought was also really um, amazing because I was only 14 when I started dating him. Um, unfortunately for me, I suppose I looked older and probably acted older. Um, so I was probably moving in a faster frame. Um, like I look back and I think of my granddaughter now and she'll be 14 next year and I wouldn't have her on the back of a bike with somebody. Um, but it was, yeah, it was innocent romance when it started. Mm. Innocent romance until? Until it yeah. moved into, you know, a physical yeah. um, relationship. And again, like that didn't feel out of place at the time. It didn't feel like the wrong thing. Um, it was just something that evolved. Did you and understand what was happening in, in those intimate moments? Um, I did, I believe, in the sense that I knew not to talk about it. I knew not to share it with my schoolmates. So like I would have been doing home economics and I don't know if this would have been in your day now, but we would have sat around a square table and we would have like sewed aprons and stuff like that. And I can remember in particular one of those classes and they were kind of saying to me, oh, my God, like you have a boyfriend, you're so cool. And he has a motorbike. And I remember sitting there feeling all of that, feeling really cool and really important. But being wise enough not to say anything about what we were doing. So I knew what I was doing was something probably that I shouldn't be doing. Um, but yeah, it wasn't, you know, something that I was forced to do either. Were your pals in relationships at that stage of uh, your life? Not any that I can remember in a relationship like that because there was nobody else that I was talking to about it. Okay. So it was very unspoken. Yeah, it was very unspoken. What held you back from speaking about it? I suppose I knew I shouldn't be doing it. So I wasn't going to tell anybody. Where did you learn that I, I shouldn't be doing this? I, don't, I mean, I would imagine it was just the conditioning of society, mm. you know, or maybe it was the birds and the bees conversation. I honestly don't know, but I just knew it was something I shouldn't be telling somebody about. That's yeah. how I felt. Yeah. And as that 14 year old girl with a super cool boyfriend with the motorbike and the walks in the park. Where did you get the opportunity to have that intimacy? Yeah, that was kind of the unfortunate thing in a way, I suppose, because there wouldn't have been real opportunities back then because it was, you know, just like very innocent outdoor stuff. But his dad had died and his mother was a widow. And I used to stay with her on the nights that he'd be 
work like he used to do duties in the army, which would be like a 24 hour duty. Um, and basically, <laughs> like this isn't funny, but this is the reality. Um, she went to mass every day and he she'd be gone to mass and he'd come home from duty. And basically it was a two bedroom house. His bedroom was in the back. She had a double bed and a single bed in the front. And I sleep in the single bed. And like I can literally remember him climbing into that bed and just the beauty of the heat of the body and being held. And that is literally, you know, where it would have started yeah. and taken place. Yeah. And it wasn't that it was, you know, hugely frequent, like things moved fast, you know, from the time, I suppose, it became physical. So it wasn't like there was, you know, months or years of that activity. Yeah. Um, yeah. Destiny hit that in the head fast. At this time, especially when you were staying in the house, how were your parents with the relationship and the seriousness of it? Did they realise the seriousness of it? I don't think so. You know, my parents were from a different generation, like they would have been very innocent, very traditional. I would have imagined like in their wildest dreams, I don't think they could ever anticipated or expected Mm. that this would have happened. So they would have seen you know, a young girl who was probably smitten with a guy who seemed, you know, sound, um, who was upstaying with a widow who was in her 60s and minding her. Like, you know, the last thing I'm sure they would have anticipated would have been that 30 minute window of opportunity, you know, that we both seized. Yeah. Um, so like it would have been a huge shock to my parents. Huge. And that's where... Your story really begins, isn't it? Mm. Tell us what happened. That's where it begins. So around, I would say probably December time, I realized I had missed a period. And even though I hadn't, like I wouldn't ever say I had consciously thought of the consequences of being sexually active. I knew at the same time that that was serious. Like I had um, started my periods about 11. So I was used to a very regular cycle. And were you taking precautions? No, no concept for that. No concept. Like I never, I don't think I ever joined the dots or added them up. Even though I knew what I was doing. Yeah. Probably I shouldn't be doing, but my 15 year old mind never went beyond to the consequences of what could happen until I missed my period. And I think it was probably, I'd say I was maybe about eight weeks pregnant. So it could have been January when I went to the doctor. And do you remember having that realization? Yes, I remember knowing that I needed to go to the doctor and have a pregnancy test. So I probably had missed a second period at this stage. How did you feel? figuring this out? Panicked, probably a little bit. I don't have huge. Like memories of the emotions before hearing the reality of it. I just remember being kind of nervous going down to the doctor because, you know, I'd be going in on my own. I don't think I'd ever done that previously. Mm -hmm. I was probably always brought to the doctor. Um, At this stage, had you spoken to your boyfriend? Yes. But again, I don't have huge memories of that other than saying I need to go down and have a pregnancy test. 
Um, and back then when you went to the doctor, like it was like five days later before you get the results. So when I went and got the sample, he said to me, ring on Friday. And if the test is positive, all I'll say is you need to come down for an appointment. Um, and that's what happened. And I think my memories are a bit more vivid from there on, I suppose, mm. maybe because the consequences were so much more serious. So rural Cork, the early 1980s at this stage, yeah. going to the doctor, a 15 year old girl saying I need a pregnancy test. What was that like? Well, he was lovely. Like he was a really, really nice doctor. Um, he was our family doctor, so I knew him. Mm. And like he was very kind. That's what I remember. I remember him just saying that because I was under the age of consent, he had a legal duty to tell my father, which, by the way, I was thrilled because I hadn't the courage to tell him and I didn't know how I was going to do it. So that was actually a relief to me. Um, yeah, but he was very kind. That's what I remember. At this stage, how were things with your parents how was your relationship? Would you talk about these things? We definitely didn't talk about sex. Yeah, no. Like back in the 80s, you kind of, if you got a book on the birds and the bees um, in sixth class, I think that was about it. Yeah. I mean, I remember my mother at some stage saying, you know, I think like we must have a talk about the birds and the bees. And I said, I know about it. <laughs> you know, it was that kind of, yeah. Yeah. Relationship. And I would have been at that teenage Years where I would have probably been button heads with my mother a bit, not so much my dad, but definitely with my mom a bit, like normal teenage stuff. I'm just trying to imagine what that must have been like for the doctor to say, yes, you're pregnant and now I have to tell your parents. Yeah, yeah I just, shock is all I can say. Like I didn't really think beyond just knowing that at some stage he was going to be told or they were going to be told. Yeah, yeah. So what happened from there? So the next memory I have is just um, being up in my bedroom and my dad coming in the bedroom door and just I knew he had been told um, and I just started bawling, crying, just like, and I don't know why I thought he was going to slap me because that's not the childhood that I had. Maybe it was because I felt it was so serious. Maybe I felt it deserved a slap. But as he walked over towards me, like I started crying, I was saying, I'm sorry, Dad, I'm sorry, Dad. And like he just sat down, put his arm around my shoulder and just said, it's going to be all right. Wow. We'll work it out. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. And like I just was sobbing. Um, I've no idea what he was going through, but yeah. Isn't it so gorgeous that he was able to meet you? where you needed him to in that moment. Absolutely. Was there a part of you that was terrified thinking ahead to the next, you know, seven months to having a baby to becoming a mother? You know, at that stage, I feel like I was frozen. It was like, and I don't know if that's how it was really, or if that's how my brain processed it to keep me safe. But it was like little chunk sizes. That's all I was doing. At that moment, I just cared about apologizing and him knowing that I was sorry. Um, you know, and that was it. And like he I remember he just said to me, don't say anything to your mother just yet. I need to work some things out. And maybe that froze my brain again for another while that I just shut it off. 
Did you know what he meant by that? I need to work some things out. I didn't really. No, I didn't. I suppose the one thing is I knew I could trust him. Um, but I, I had no concept for what that would mean, what would lay ahead of me. Yeah, yeah. So he worked some things out. Yeah, and the next thing I know, like I think maybe a few days have passed again. It's hard for me to work the time because I think I just closed my head off and just like I still told nobody. I mean, I didn't say to anybody in school. There was no friend that I told. I told nobody. Mm. Um, And with your boyfriend at this stage, where were things at? So like, obviously, I told him that I was pregnant but like there was never a case of, oh, well, I'll come and, you know, have a conversation with your parents or I'll be there. He I suppose he was probably as relieved as me that the doctor was going to tell them. Yeah. But I never remember him saying he's going to step up or he was going to do anything differently. In some ways, it was like he melted into the background. Um, But I mean, I'm sure I was probably still seeing him, but I just don't have. I definitely don't have any memories of reassurance or feeling safe um, from that side. Yeah. Um, it's it's really like as if he disappeared is the only way I can explain it right now. But maybe within a week, I came home from school another day and my mom was upstairs and she called me up and she was sitting on their bed and she was crying and she had these booklets or pamphlets just laid out on the bed. And it's interesting because she said, you know, we have to send you away. And I just said, I know, ma'am. And the two of us just sat at the end of the bed and cried. And I don't know how I knew that. I don't know if I knew where I was going. I don't know if I knew that already. But again, like despite the fact that I was 15 and pregnant, I had never back-cheeked my parents. So, you know, maybe it was that trust. Maybe it was just that obedience. They were going to make the decisions and I was going to follow. Yeah. Do you remember anyone else in your community or in the surrounding towns falling pregnant at a young age and Um, their fate? Definitely not at that age. No. Yeah. No, that was never on my radar. Like it was just, it was so far removed from, I suppose, what my path was kind of supposed to be or would have been. Um, you know, the community I lived in, they were regular, you know, I use that in inverted commas, kind of two parent families with kids, got married first, had the children. That's that would have been my community. Yeah. Tell me about the pamphlets. What was in them? I didn't look at them, but I, I can as such in the detail. But I remember the letters C-U-R-A, Cora. And I just know that that was some arm of the Catholic Church that dealt with matters like this. Mm. I don't even know what that stands for. C-U-R-F, it's still even a thing now, but it was in 1982. They came and whisked you out. That's what it represents to me. And that's what happened? That's what happened, yeah. In February, I um, took all my books out of school bit by bit during the week so that by the time midterm break came, there was no print or evidence of me in Loretta Convent in Fromoy. I had vanished into thin air, gone. 
So, I mean, he was a lovely priest, Father Brown. He drove us up to Dunboyne in County Mead, the Good Shepherd nuns. Um, my mother and my father and myself. Yeah. What was that journey like? I just remember the quietness. I was sitting in the back with Mammy and I remember stopping on the way and just thinking it was so strange, like he'd brought a flask and sandwiches. And I'm sure that was very practical. It was probably like a five hour journey back then. It was definitely a four hour journey. I just remember feeling that there was something a bit bizarre about that. Um, but it just felt like a very silent journey. Now, maybe the adults were talking. I have I don't feel like I was making conversation. Mm. Um, that morning when the priest came and collected you, your mom, your dad, did your siblings know what was going on? Did you hug them goodbye? I have no memory of that. I wouldn't think so. I'd imagine they were told after I was gone. Because that's the one thing I'd have to say about my parents, even now, you know, with any of us, it's always age appropriate information. I know they knew when I was gone Mm. because my parents did come to visit me up in the home and they came up at Easter and my sister came and she was only 11 at the time. And yeah, my brother definitely knew he was 17 and he was also in the army. And I think he would have liked to have taken out his own justice um, on the situation. But that was all kind of hindsight. I There was no movie hugs and goodbyes and see you in six months. Like it wasn't like that. It was kind of very discreetly done. I took my books. My bag was packed. We got in the car. And were you showing at this stage or do you have any symptoms of So I wouldn't have necessarily been shown, but like my school skirt was definitely after getting a bit tighter. So I had a little bit of a swell in my tummy. Mm. I didn't thankfully have morning sickness where I was getting up and trying to hide that going to school. But I did have like evidence of knowing that my body was changing because my boyfriend's mother used to make a mince dish that I loved And like at this stage, you know, she didn't know I was pregnant and I used to be up there and she used to make it extra because I really liked it. And I'm not joking you, Claude, at the amount of times I nearly killed myself trying to get that back down my throat and cover it up. Like really, it was just like heaving. I have never, ever been able to eat mince since the very rare time. And I hear people talking about spaghetti bolognese and all these dishes that sound exotic with mince. No, no, no. That trauma seems nearly greater than many of the other stuff. But yeah. Not even a burger. I love a burger. (laughs) Well, I kind of went vegetarian, but I probably could have done a burger because that was more meaty, but definitely not a a loose minced dish. No, no. So do you remember arriving into the home? Yeah, that is like something that's tattooed onto my mind. Like it's it's funny how some of the memories, even when you're asking me, I'm struggling mm. to recall them. And yet that that one is just imprinted into my head. Because the building was so dominating. It was just so grey. And like, I can still hear the crunch of that gravel under the car. And none of that really mattered on the way in. I guess it was. 
the memory of that gravel when the door closed and my parents left. And I knew that I was going to be there for six months. I think that's when the reality of where I was really, really hit me. Like, daring and exciting and bold as it all sounded. Like I was just a frightened child who had just got herself into one big mess. So yeah, I remember that clear. Clear as if it happened yesterday. And it's funny because like sometimes I can talk about it and I'm fine. Sometimes it brings up all these emotions. I'm trying to imagine that 15-year-old girl, as you said, just a child, the door closing in this really dark, grey place, waving goodbye to your parents. Did you understand, you know, why you were there and what it meant? I got it then. I most definitely got it then. Yeah. Yeah. And I knew it wasn't that it was a punishment, but like you, I knew I was being hidden away. Like society did not want to see the evidence, you know, of what my story had to tell. That was the world that we lived in in 1982. Um, You know, and like, I would use the term like sent away. And I know my parents struggle with that, but I don't blame them. You know, I don't actually even blame anybody. It's just the way it was back then. And like, I know I was sent away because you were normally put in a place that was furthest from where you lived. So there was less chance of anybody bumping into you. Like, that's the way it worked. Yeah. So all the shame. All the shame, yeah. For a baby coming into the world. All the shame for a baby coming into the world. Because had I been put on a boat to England and had been dealt with, there technically would have been no shame for society. Was that something you talked about? No, thankfully. Absolutely no. No. Talk to us about your introduction into the home. What information were you provided with? What were people like? Were people caring for you? Were people kind? Like, I wouldn't say that they were harsh or mean. Like, you were told that no private information was to be shared. You had the option to use a false name, but you were definitely not to use your surname. So you could use your Christian name or create a false um, name. Um, And it was... Like, I suppose, kind of institutionalized, like there wasn't a laundry where I was. But we used to pack the cards, you know, into the cellophane, the envelopes on the cards. What type of cards? Like birthday cards, anniversary cards. So I'd imagine the nuns did that for printing houses and probably got paid for it. Um, And we just did it, I suppose, to pass the time, really. Like we didn't ask to do it, but you were given the boxes and we did it. 
um, and you had jobs to do. There was tasks to be done. So like you might be on canteen duty, you might be cleaning the cloister. You didn't have to go to mass, but there was mass every day. So there was a certain routine and a structure to getting up, to having, you know, the meals and to cleaning the place. You were locked in at night. Um, you were locked into the bedrooms. That was a big problem for me. Like I, that was you know, a little bit panicky for me, but like you wouldn't be locked into individual rooms. Sometimes towards the end of the pregnancy, you had kind of individual rooms, but you could be in a dorm with three other people. Um, Why were they locking you? I suppose to stop us escaping. I'm sorry now for laughing. Like, where were we going to go? Mm. Like really with the heavy bellies, where were we going to go? But, you know, I don't know. We were unruly women who needed to be controlled. I'm not really sure. And um, where, you know, where the other girls we were with, were they unruly women? Were they? No, like it was such a broad, like I would have been one of the youngest, but not the youngest. So there was a real mix of people. Like there definitely was one girl up there who was pregnant with the baby from a priest. There was women who were in their late 20s um, who were technically, you know, supposedly on career breaks. There was young girls like me who were just in school. Um, like there was every walk of life, like every mixture of like society, class, sad story, you know, wealthy scenarios, everything. There was 28 beds there when I was there and they were full continually. Now, not everybody would have stayed six months. I was definitely one of the longest. I suppose maybe older people were able to hide it better and then come later. Did you form friendships? Yes. Yeah, so there was two girls in particular that I became friendly with. Um, but like people, there were very kind, you know, like we were all in the same situation. So it didn't really matter what the backgrounds were or what the scenarios were. So you're forming friendships with these other girls who have found themselves in similar situations. Did you know what the end game was? You know, what? nine months signified what was going to happen? Yeah, I mean, I I guess I knew that at the end of it, really, I would be going home without a baby. That was really the, I suppose, the essence behind it, that you went away, you had the privacy, you dealt with the matter and you came back and got on with your life. Now, I don't remember that being said at the start, um, and again, I think it was that chunking and just going step by step. But once you got there, like the nuns were very clear on what was the right thing from their point of view for the baby. And that was reinforced daily. So how would they speak about this or what would they say? They'd say that, you know, a child deserves to have two parents, a child deserves to have a loving home, a child deserves to have security. And that obviously when you're pregnant and you give birth to a baby, you're going to be very emotional and you're going to want to keep that child, but it might not be the right thing for the baby. So that was the undercurrent that we weren't, you know, in fit circumstances our situations to take care of these babies that we were carrying and that they had a better chance or they would have a better life if we gave them up. So you entered there knowing what the outcome yeah. was going to be? At least what the 
intention or the pressure was. Yeah. 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 Was that on your mind much then? I'm imagining, you know, as your baby began to kick. Yeah. As your belly grew. Yeah. Well, it's funny because when I got there, like, again, it's that child with a child. Like, I would have been kind of squeamish. And I remember even thinking, how am I going to grow this baby? Like, what's going to happen? Like, I was so afraid, Claudia, of feeling that child moving inside me. In my head, it felt like some sort of a horror movie that I was going to feel this happening and I wouldn't be able to cope. But of course, Mother Nature is just amazing. Like I can remember like sitting up in that room and feeling the first flutter. I kind of gone, oh, my God, oh, my God, you know, and nothing had jumped out of my stomach and it was fine. I survived. So then by the time you feel those kicks and like that becomes this beautiful, like round part of you. Were you forming a relationship yes, with the baby? Yes, completely. And I knew she was a girl. I always knew I was having a girl. There was never a question in my mind. And I was still in love. Like I was 15. I had met my prince and he was going to fix all this. And he was talking about he was going to buy a pram. He was going to get this. He was going to get that. There was a period where I believed that I was going to be keeping my baby. Almost like a fantasy. Yeah, almost like a fantasy. This was going to work out. I could make this happen. This was going to work. So, yeah, I was bonding and I used to chat to her and rub her and, yeah, have conversations. The friendships that you were forming, were any of those girls further along with you? Did they just disappear in the middle of the night? Did they come back? Did you hear babies cry? What what was that part of it like? So there was a nursery there and like I spent from February to August and there was never one baby came back to that nursery. Never. So these girls left and most of them never came back and no babies came back. And there was one girl, I can't remember her name, but I can still see her face. She was actually from Kilkenny and she was keeping her baby and she knew she was having a little boy. And there was a lovely woman that used to work in the kitchen and she lived locally in the village and she was after buying her a second or helping her get a second hand pram. And the excitement, the absolute excitement when this girl was going in to have the baby because this was going to be the first baby that was going to come back. And she had a stillborn baby. And that was the closest that we came to having any infant back in that And it wasn't that they just didn't come back and prepare to go home. I don't know of anybody that left there. She was the only girl that I knew that was going to be keeping her baby. Oh, my God. The cruelty of that. Yeah. Yeah. That nursery never heard or saw an infant in the six months I was there. Now, I don't think that that was really, I mean, it was called a nursery, but I don't think the intention was ever to fill it with babies anyway you know, from the nun's point of view. Yeah, as you said, they were very certain on Mm -hmm. the outcome of every woman that was there. So do you remember the moment that you realised you were a neighbour? I do. Yeah, I sure do. Well, I actually, when I woke up, I just thought I needed to go to the toilet. I had this awful pressure and it was 5am in the morning. And then as the morning went on, I realized that there was something more going on. But like I was very, I was there six months. I'd seen a lot of girls go into labor. So I wasn't really that um, 
you know, nervous. Obviously, you know, there was a bit of anticipation. But I was cool enough <laughs> that I waited. So the they had a minibus. The nuns would drive us in on a Thursday for checkup. And I literally waited and I got a spin in the minibus. Yeah, I got a spin in the minibus because, um, and this isn't even funny, but I... I needed 14 euros back then, pounds, sorry, actually. That was the price of a taxi from Dunboyne into Hollis Street in 1982, 14 pounds. And I had one 14 pounds. So I either got the taxi into labour or I got the taxi home afterwards. So I waited to get the bus in so I'd have the fare for the taxi out afterwards. Um, so, yeah, when I went in, I was pretty, you know, well on in in my labour. And that was, I suppose, uneventful enough. Um, sometimes there's a great protection in the innocence of youth. Yeah. Because you don't overanalyze. You just have this acceptance. Now it catches up to you years later, but. <laughs> and was part of that acceptance that you would be saying goodbye to your baby in that hospital? <sighs> Yeah, again, I still hadn't accepted the full consequence of that, I think, until I would say she was six days old and I was getting her dress to be taken away. Even though I knew I knew at that stage because her father had never stepped up to the bar. I was 15. I didn't have any ability to earn money or know that there was any supports for taking care of a baby. So it's almost uh, like you wouldn't admit. To it until yeah. you absolutely until I had to, to on the yeah. last minute. Yeah. Six days. What were those six days in the hospital like with your tiny new baby? They were just magic. I mean, they were bittersweet because you like one minute you're feeding her, looking down, and then your tears are dropping on her because you know this time is so finite. Like this is just another precious day. And back then actually you stayed in hospital for five days, but the social worker couldn't make it up until the sixth day. And the bed was still free, so they left me stay in. Like, otherwise I could have been sent home and she would have been there on her own. But yeah, it was precious. And like, she was so beautiful. She was, and still, like, she looked really like her dad when she was born. She had jet black hair. And he rang. And, you know, I was saying, like, we have a baby girl. And imagine he didn't even come up to see her. He didn't, like, my parents came up to see her and my sister. Um, you know, and they knew that would be the only one time they'd see her and we took photographs and I'm sure they were broken hearted, like their very first grandchild driving back to Cork, leaving their 15 year old daughter who had just given birth on her own. Um, yeah. I can't even begin to imagine. Yeah, I think of that day getting her dressed and I was in a ward. And there was like maybe 10 beds and there were the real salt of the earth dubs. You know, they used to be drinking their bottles of Guinness at night. <laughs> and I remember when I said, hey, Jesus, is there any way you could keep? And I often wonder, you know, did they think of me afterwards or did they talk about that scenario or that country girl? And um, but yeah, the the social worker was lovely. Like she was I, again, I remember the kindness. I don't remember her face, but I just remember the kindness. And I remember her walking down the corridor. And I just ran after her. 
And I asked her, could I have the little plastic bracelet around her hand? And she just said no, that she had to leave that on until she got to the foster mother, I think was what she said. But that she'd make sure that I'd get it, you know, that she'd put a note in that I would get it back. And like, it's hard, it's hard to watch somebody walk away with your baby, no matter what age you are. Yeah. I was handing her over, like, surely. Really hard, because the nurse came in, she said, I'll take her out if you want. And I just said, no. This is my responsibility. Yeah. It wouldn't have mattered anyway, because it was just a different set of arms. Either way, she was going. Yeah, it was hard. I thought my heart would never, ever come back together again. Ever. (sighs) So you watched her walk down the corridor with the social worker? They were getting the train back to Cork. I got a taxi back to the home from married mothers on my own with my hospital bag. Yep, every part of me screaming for that human being. Of course, I thought I was skinny. I remember ringing my mother and saying, bring up my jeans, I've lost all the weight. I hadn't, you know, you just, like, obviously the swell had gone a bit. Mm. Yeah. You said you felt like your heart would never heal or come back together. What, how was your heart feeling in that moment, returning to that home empty-handed? Numb. Just pure numb. I just wanted to get out of there. I had to wait until Saturday for my parents to come up to collect me. Was it maybe Friday or Saturday? I can't remember what day. I think I was there for two days anyway before they could get up. Um, And then I went home. And I suppose that didn't really make it any easier. You know, at least you're just with people who love you at least. But you're still like a shell of a person. Um, But I went back to school. Like school year started back in September and I went back to school and just kind of, you know, got back into like a routine. But I'd come home and I'd go upstairs to my bedroom and just really kind of sob gently up there. Or sometimes I'd be just watching telly in the sitting room and the tears would be coming down my face. What did those tears represent? Just absolute devastation and heartbreak, you know. And I think my mother used to be trying to prompt me because she'd say, are you all right, sure? And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I didn't talk about it. I didn't bring it up. I suppose I kept hearing those voices, you know, you have to do the right thing. You have to put it to the back of your head. Of course, you're going to feel emotional, but this is not about you. It's about the baby. And you you just keep hearing that mantra and you just keep thinking it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Mm. The power of that. It's almost like they really knew what they were doing. Mm. When you thought of her, how did you think of her? Was it that baby in the hospital? Oh, absolutely. And her full title, her full name. Back then she was Donna Hyphen Marie. Double barrel. Yeah. Yeah. 
When you returned home, you returned to school, to your community, did anyone ask you where you'd been for the last six months? I don't remember people asking, but back then you were graded by your ability. So in the convent I went to anyway. So going into leaving search, your inter-search results, and then you had another kind of intellectual test for grading in the classes. So I had missed that and I was going in one of the day to do it. And there was, I remember there was a new girl. Her dad was the bank manager. They had just moved from I and there was maybe two or three other girls and we were all sitting the exam because we'd missed it. And like she said to me, um, are you new? And I said, like, I, I don't know why. Maybe I had just decided I was done. And I just said, no, I live in Fermoy, but I said, I've been away. I had a baby. And I actually just said it straight out. I just said it straight out. I didn't tell anybody that I had a girl. I felt that was my secret, that I'd keep that, that that was my bit of privacy. But yeah, I remember saying it to that girl, Kathleen. Yeah, I remember telling her. So I I, I think I, at some level, had thought, I'm not playing the game. Mm. And something really switched in you that led you to really not yeah. play the game. Yeah. Because you went on to to get Donna Marie back. Yes. I had just one of the most special moments where I said something out loud that changed my life. Um, I came home on Tuesday and for my dinner, like we'd come home at lunchtime and mum was at the kitchen sink and I just happened to say, I'm going to see Donna Marie. I said one more time before I signed the papers. So I was due to sign the papers to release her to the um, adoptive family. And mum said, can I go with you? Um, and I just said, no, I want to see her on my own. It'll be my last time. And I just started crying and I said, how am I going to live without her? I just want to bring her home so badly. And my mother was at the kitchen, at the sink. She looked over and said, what did you say? And I said, I want to bring her home so badly. And she goes, you can bring her home. And I was like, it was like my brain. I was like, I couldn't compute it. And oh my gosh. I was like, what? And like, I remembered then they had said to me along those six months of that visit that they would support me whatever decision I made. And I remember even saying, what do you think I should do? And they saying they couldn't advise me. But somewhere in the six months of all of the other brainwashing and not having that support from, you know, my boyfriend at the time, I lost that. And literally, I would say my mother was probably saying novenas every day that I would just utter those words because she just sees that moment. And I was like... I can bring her home. And even mommy said, we'll bring your father there now. So she wanted it too. She wanted it. Yeah. She wanted it. Oh, God. <laughs> I feel so emotional. Yeah. 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 And yeah, so then we rang dad and there was a bit of a conversation that evening. I think he wanted to really make sure that it was the right decision. Mm. He was saying, you know, I know you feel now it'll be the end of your problems, but you'll have a big battle ahead. It's small town, Cloda, he could have told me I'd have to walk on broken glass. That glimmer of light had come through that door and nothing, absolutely nothing was going to stop me. Mm. Nothing. 
And nothing like, did. Nothing Sophie. did. He was like, you know, everything he said, I was like, I know that, I know that, I know that. And no, that was it. Yeah. So she was born on the 12th of August and I got her back on the 11th of September in 1982. Yeah. What was the reunion like? Really, really special. So like when she left the hospital, she was in a little baby grow, you know, with a beautiful blanket around her. And like her foster mother had her dressed in the most gorgeous baby pink dress when we collected her. And she still had that shock of jet black hair. And she just looked beautiful. She just looked perfect. Perfect. Mm. Yeah. I think she's listening to this now. She's still perfect. <laughs> <laughs> she's not black anymore, though. It went blonde. Yeah. 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 Did your boyfriend ever come back on the scene? Oh, flittered in and out of her life. Poorly. Poorly. Um, but the fantasy never came to be. The fantasy never came to be. And his loss. Mm. She is an amazing young woman. And an amazing mother. And yeah, we did fine. We did absolutely fine. And I'm sure there is beauty in two loving parents. But my goodness, there is magic in the lineage of a family that just want to love a baby. in no matter what form. And we did good. I feel so full of emotion after hearing Shirley's incredibly moving story. What a beautiful happy ending, but what heartbreak and sadness that preceded it. I'm very conscious that sadly there are many women who didn't get Shirley's happy ending. And if you are one of those women or someone whose life has been impacted by the terrible shortcomings of our country, I'm sending you so much love. I wish things could have been different for every single woman who stepped foot in a building like the one Shirley was sent to and for every single mother who was parted from their precious baby. I must admit that listening to Shirley's beautiful story has been very healing for me as an adopted person. For so much of my life, I have felt such a strong sense of rejection, of worthlessness, of unimportance. But to hear the love Shirley held for her beautiful baby as she kicked in her belly and as she dressed her on that sixth day before placing her in the arms of a stranger was very powerful for me. I know many people with an adoption connection listen to Unspoken and I am sending you love today too. I don't know if I have the words to help those of you listening who can relate in some way to today's story to heal. If you can relate, no five-minute therapy segment is ever going to hold the power to lessen the pain and the sadness, the anger, the loss the complete myriad of emotions that I have no doubt you are carrying. But what I do know is the power of self-compassion, whatever the struggle, whatever the pain, whatever the heartbreak. So if you are carrying pain in your heart, I urge you as best you can to offer yourself self-compassion today. I find these beautiful words by Jennifer Healy very comforting on the days I most need to turn to self-compassion. I hope they offer you that same comfort. To the life that breathes through me, 
May you bear witness to my wounds and all of my broken pieces, and help me to treat even these things with compassion. When I must face loss, may I feel your tenderness, the tenderness of my own being. When I hurt, grant me the patience to heal in my own time, in my own way. For every frustration and mistake, may I uncover the strength to lean in and listen, and to not turn away. Have mercy on me when I'm most in need of it. Bring to my experience a sense of awe for life and for myself, so that I can keep opening up to this moment. Show me how self-compassion and forgiveness are the roots of courage and resilience. Help me see that I have nothing lacking in myself and that my very essence is the divinity of unconditional love. Remind me again how to fill my own well with the love I've always been looking outside myself for. Breathe into me the memory of my wholeness so that I may bear witness to every imperfection with peace and respect. Through this compassionate awareness, may I see myself more clearly. May I know myself in my entirety. And then, with a steady gaze, watch as I transform all of my pain into a great river of love. See how I hold both my sorrow and my joy, every dream and fear, in the still, vast ocean of my heart. See how I expand to encompass every part of me. And through this connection to it all, to all of myself, may I reach out and touch the pain of those around me with greater compassion and grace. May I be the one who pulls others into my love. Let it be. May it be so, and so it is. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Unspoken with me, Dr. Clodagh Campbell, the wellness psychologist. Be sure to like, subscribe, and follow me at The Wellness Psychologist on Instagram if you would like to hear more. If you identified with this topic, make sure to check out the show notes where I have listed related resources for you. I hope you find them beneficial. Today's podcast is very proudly sponsored by my absolute favourite Irish skincare brand, Ella and Joe Cosmetics. With formulas that are powered by plants and backed by science, Ella and Joe are dedicated to creating high quality, luxurious skincare products that actually deliver results and that create magic moments in your day. Whether your skin is dry, dull, or just in need of a pick me up, the Ella and Joe range will put the joy back into your skincare routine. Find your skin confidence again by shopping Ella and Joe's beautiful products on ellaandjoe.ie using discount code UNSPOKEN for 15% off. Thank you.